That's Matthew 18, 1 to 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened round his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Around about ten days ago, one of our trainees was looking rather anxious. I think we chatted just down here early in the morning. And I wasn't quite sure what the issue was. I said to him, is everything all right? I've lost my wedding ring, he said. Now, he was putting a pretty brave face on it and trying to look casual. It's only a piece of metal and all these other kind of things. But later in the week, I met his wife. She did not appear to have viewed the matter with quite the same dispassionate objectivity. And apparently, following discussions with his wife that morning, he then retraced his step. It was absolutely heaving down with rain. I think the ring had slipped off. And he retraced his step, quite a considerable journey home by bike, looking in every nook and cranny of the pavement, you know, the, down the um, manhole things and all the rest of it. And eventually, they found it. Now, the aim this morning, I think, of Matthew is for us to see the precious value of every single member of Jesus' church. That's where we're going. And to get this, I think we need to try and straighten a few things out. And there are going to be a number of things as we go through that we'll just pause and try and make sure we're clear on. But first, that the child in verses 5 and 6 doesn't refer to every single kid under the age of 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble better for him to have a great millstone. And the point of the child illustration that has been raised in verses 1 to 4 is that the child in the first century had no status. The child was a nobody. The child brought nothing to the party. It wasn't consulted about any major decision. The child really was a possession and was dealt with and even disposed of at will. No rank, no responsibility, no position, no possessions, no status, no standing. L last week, we suggested that the child in contemporary 
language might be, you know, the sort of person you say, you're a loser, loser status. And we suggested that the brand image for the disciple might be, you know, loser. That is, spiritually speaking, I've got nothing I can bring to the party. I I can only receive from the Lord Jesus the forgiveness he has come to bring. I, I remember passing a guy many, many years ago when I was a young man, and he was staring at me, just kind of looking at me, staring like that. And I said to him foolishly and with a certain amount of kind of bravado, what are you looking at? To which he replied, not much. <laughs> Loser status. I- I'm not going to tell you what happened after that. But, uh... <laughs> and you remember the question that kind of provoked this in verse 1, where the disciples come to Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You know, which of us is to be bigged up? Which of us is a winner? And we saw that entry is for losers, verse 3, unless you, some translations are converted, unless you do 180 degree and stop thinking the way the world thinks, unless you turn and become like little children, you won't enter. Entry is for losers, and then greatness is for losers. He said, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest, and losers love losers. So it's really important when we go through this that we don't, think we're talking about every child under the age of five and that being kind to children is being kind to Jesus. Uh, It's good to be kind to children. (laughs) And it's good that things like UNICEF and Help a London Child and so forth, but that's not at all what Jesus is talking about here. The thing he's talking about is welcoming each individual person who comes to Jesus on the basis of their own great need Realizing I can bring nothing to Jesus, I've got nothing to add to the party, I'm a spiritual loser, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, those who mourn, they will be comforted, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, realizing we haven't got it, we need it. And this ties right in, remember Matthew is teaching us, he's our instructor, Uh, Matthew, we're in his seminary, and in this module, if you like, he's talking about the church Chapter 16, verse 18, you are Peter, you've declared that Jesus is the Christ, and on this rock of the teaching of who Jesus is and what he's done, I will build my church, says Jesus. Now, here is the church in chapter 18, and uh, he's talking about those who recognize, we recognize that we're losers. We come to Jesus, nothing in my hand I bring. And as we receive such a one, so we receive Jesus. As a little sidebar, it is just worth noting throughout Matthew's gospel where the phrase little one or least of these is used. It's talking about disciples. People get in a muddle over that. I've been thinking this week about the phrase national treasure. You know, people say, you know, so-and-so, a few Americans here, who do you think your national treasure is? Joe Biden, he's old enough, isn't he? But I don't know who your national treasure might be. But maybe... Mary Berry or David Attenborough or Boris. No, maybe not Boris. I don't know. Whoever you think you're national, our national. Actually, the Lord Jesus is saying every disciple is a heavenly treasure status. Heavenly treasure. And given that reality, each disciple is a heavenly treasure. So don't stumble them. Don't despise them. And verses 5 through 9 contain three areas in which I might undervalue one of these little ones. Uh, And once again, we need to get something a little bit straight. So whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones 
who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened. Where, where we read here, temptations to sin cause to sin, it is translating a word. It's a Greek word. I'm not a great Greek boffin, but uh, this, I don't like quoting Greek from the pulpit. It sounds so pretentious. But there is a Greek word, scandalizo. Scandal is the word we get from it. It, it, it refers to the little piece in a trap that triggers the trap. So, I mean, I know St. Helens people don't have mice in their homes. We clean our homes properly, so we don't have mice. But imagine you were to have a mouse in your home and you were to set a trap. And the bit that triggers the trap before you take the little dear thing and release it into the wild to a better home or just release it to a better home, uh, that little bit that triggers it, that's the scandal, that's the thing that causes to stumble. And it comes to be used of a rock over which you might trip up when you're walking in the street or whatever. And so we find it used 14 times in Matthew's Gospel as a verb, a further five times as a noun. On two of the occasions, it refers to something that makes that is moral, sin. But in the vast majority of cases, it has to do with persecution that causes a disciple to stumble, tribulation that causes a trip up for a disciple, or doctrinal matters. I cannot stomach that Jesus is God, and so I am stumbled, or that I am a sinner. I find that offensive. And so when Jesus... Um, so some of the translations have it, the King James translates it to offend or to give offense or an offense. And the New American version has to stumble, something else, one of the others has to fall away. So let's have a look at the verses again, shall we? And let's read them with that kind of idea in mind. Where Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever stumbles... One of these little ones, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened fasten around his neck. And woe to the world for stumblings. It's necessary that stumblings, things that cause people to stumble, come. But woe to the one by whom the stumbling comes. And if your hand offends you, cut it off. And so on if your eye, similarly. Three things, then, that might stumble a person. First this whole issue of welcome and who we receive and who we don't. Secondly, the world and the way the world treats disciples. Third, worth, value. Welcome. Now, the image in verse 6 is really graphic, isn't it? Whoever stumbles, one of these little ones, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck. Henry, who runs the Mandarin work, took me a back route up to the Great Wall of China. And we climbed up this mountain. I don't know if it's Henry or a friend of his, but anyway, it was an extraordinary route we went. And then there was a crossroads, two paths. And in the middle of this crossroads was a community mill. And there was a great, huge piece of stone at the bottom. And then a movable piece of stone about so big, made of granite or some such other hard stone with a great hole in the middle, which you would slot thing, and then the donkey would walk around driving it. It must have weighed a couple of tons. Didn't try picking it up. The millstone. So it would be better to have your head threaded through the hole in that great millstone, taken to the center of the Sea of Galilee, 
and dropped overboard than to cause one of these precious, priceless treasures to stumble and fall away. It's real peaky blinder stuff, isn't it? I don't know if there is a phrase, to be millstoned. It would be better to be millstoned. What might cause such a one to stumble? Well, verse 5 gives the immediate context. Whoever receives one of these believers, in my name receives me, but whoever stumbles one of these little ones, better to be millstoned. I think... You know, let's take the disciples for a moment. Verse 1, who's the greatest? Well, if that's your attitude, you know, who really is the great one amongst us? Well, immediately I'm looking down on others, aren't I? I'm greater than him or her, and she's higher in the pecking order than I am. And really, they're not worth the time of day because they're a nobody. And, well, I'm a loser, or she's a loser, or he's a loser. And we have an example of that in this very section. So if you flick back a page to chapter 15 and you see the way the disciples handled the Canaanite woman. And she came, have mercy, Lord, chapter 15, verse 22. Son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by demons. Have mercy. He didn't answer a word. His disciples came and begged him saying, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. She's a nobody. She's a loser. We don't want people like her. Keep her at arm's length. Don't welcome her. Let's get shot of her. I'll tell you uh, from my own background something really which I look back on with great shame now. I remember as a new Christian, a very baby Christian, I've been a Christian for about a year, and I was about to go up to university and I went to stay with my granddad, and he said to me, you're going up to uni, you ought, you're going up to university, he would have said, I think, uh, but you, you should find the Christian union. Make sure you find them on day one and be part of the Christian union. They will become like your own family. To my great shame, I remember going and finding the Christian union and thinking, oh dear, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish and weak to shame the wise. I think Jesus is also wanting us to regulate our behavior. Because just immediate to this, he says to Peter, um, they want you to pay our temple tax. And I don't have to pay my temple tax because the temple is actually mine You know, I am the son of God, and so it's all really about me. Uh, Go out fishing, you'll find a coin in the mouth of the fish. Not that surprising a thing, given that coins glitter and fish like glittery thing. And take that and pay it in order not to stumble them. So even the temple that was going to be instrumental in his crucifixion, there may be a precious disciple there. So regulate your behavior in order to make sure we don't stumble. And so the way we look at people, others, the way we welcome people, the way we regulate our own behavior. Remember the Apostle Paul, he didn't receive money in order not to uh, uh, be a hindrance. He, he, he would, would or what would not eat certain things in order to find acceptance. Uh, he had Timothy circumcised in order that Timothy might be acceptable. 
that sort of regulation of behavior. It's not just with relation to other believers, however. Look at verse 7. Now, Jesus wants us to look at the world. Woe to the world. This is most important as disciples. We must understand the world for what the world is, how gross and offensive the world is to God. Woe to the world for stumblings. How does the world cause a person to stumble? Well, chapter 24, verses 9 through 13, just over four or five pages. Chapter 24, verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be stumbled and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So people are caused to stumble by the world because of persecution, And people are caused to stumble by the world because of doctrinal error. So the Pharisees refuse to accept Jesus. Blessed is the one who is not stumbled by me, says Jesus in chapter 11. But the Pharisees are stumbled by Jesus because he says, I am God. I've come to die on the cross for sin. And Peter is described as a stumbling block for refusing to recognize that Jesus has come to die on behalf of sin, the cross. So there's both persecution and doctrinal falsehood that causes people to stumble and woe to the world because of it. And such stumblings are necessary because Jesus, as God, is stepping into this world and he has to be given over to crucifixion if he is going to save the world. And Jesus steps into a world that is full of pride, that will not recognize the world's poverty and loser status. The world thinks that I really am somebody. That's the world. Don't you know who I am? And the world refuses to kneel at the feet of Jesus and to bow to his rule. And the world insists on its own ability to save itself. I, 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 can, I can cope with this. I'm a humanist. Uh, we'll triumph. And the world hates Jesus because Jesus comes in and spells out truth to the world. And because the world is on the side of lies, the world rejects Jesus and rejects the people of Christ who are precious, priceless treasures Precious treasures. And we need to realize just how gross the world is. And so it's entirely necessary, inevitable, and essential for hostility as Jesus comes into the world. They will hate his claim. They will detest the disciples. They will hate teaching about the cross because it banishes pride and shows us for what we're really like. And so there will be David Baddiels and Stephen Daw- Richard Dawkins and Stephen Fry's, and there will be the relentless march of the cult of pride. And there will be the totalitarian zeal of LGBTQIA. And these things will, they are necessary. They'll be there. But woe to the world on account of them.
Wherever we find the church, loser status. Wherever we find the church, looked down upon. Wherever we find the church, despised. Wherever we find the church, hostility, tribulation, persecution. Wherever we find the church, precious, precious disciple. Woe to the world because of stumblings. Now, 8 through 10, see us move from our welcome and the world now to our own sense of value, worth, our value system. And again, the imagery is picture language. Jesus is not intending self-mutilation here. The early disciples never understood it as such. The first century was not made up of limbless, blinded devotees. Rather, Jesus is making the point very strongly to show us how serious these matters are. And though in chapter 5, Jesus uses this imagery of severing hands and so forth, metaphorically, picture language, to speak of specific moral matters, here I think it is broader, given the use of the term, to stumble. So, verse 8, if your hand or foot stumbles you, cut it off, throw it away, it's better for you to enter the life crippled or lame than two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. If your eye stumbles you, tear it out, better to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. One of the best uh, commentaries, I've only just discovered it, I've been borrowing uh, one of the young staff Here's commentary, and I have my own copy, so I'm feeling very pleased with myself. And it's Don Carson's commentary is outstanding. If you're wanting to be, you know, serious in study of Matthew, it's well worth getting hold of that alongside, obviously, the text. But also, there's a guy called Charles Qualls. I'd love to meet him, Charles Qualls. I mean, what a name. It's a great name, isn't it? William Gwillem, I, I don't know. But anyway, Charles Qualls has written what is, I think, an outstanding piece of work, really helpful in so many different ways. He charts early first century punishment prior to the Christianization of the West. The king killed the man's six brothers and their mother, mother in a manner so grotesque that I'm not going to repeat it. It involved severing of limbs and vats of boiling water. When the man refused to recant, that is, he refused to stop speaking of Jesus, the king threatened him with the cutting out of his tongue. The man stuck his tongue out and then held out his hands willingly, offering them to his torturer, saying, I got these from heaven, and I trust I shall receive them back from him when I die. And he was put to death. He was an Old Testament believer, actually. So what I think Jesus is saying here is, look, look yes, there is going to be torture for belonging to Jesus, but better to face the worst sort of torture than to be condemned to eternal suffering as a result of turning our back on Jesus Christ. Better to lose everything. We are so precious and the salvation Jesus has won for us is so valuable and our place in heaven is so important and the punishment for rejecting Jesus Christ is so, so intense, so awful, eternally awful. But it's better to go through life without a limb or an organ than to face the reality of eternal punishment. 
Remember, he's just said, if any man will come after me, let him take up his cross and follow. So if some possession or some pleasure or some pastime or some ambition or even some person, some relationship, steps between us and our loyalty to Jesus Christ, better to cut it off, to be done without it, our value system. And Paul says the same thing, doesn't he, in Philippians 3. Whatever I consider gain, I count now as dung, manure, refuse. Worth bearing in mind that down through the centuries of the church, this has been normal for Christians. Uh, Quite a number of years ago, I thought it'd be good for us when we came back from holiday as a couple to read together Fox's Book of Martyrs. Actually, I read Fox's Book of Martyrs to my wife um, until sort of a, a date in September, which happened to be our wedding anniversary. And it was suggested that as I was reading about the martyrdom of one or other individual that perhaps the wedding anniversary wasn't the most appropriate date to to, to read about this but anyway it's worth reading fox's book of martyrs and just seeing what has been normal for christian down through the centuries and is all over the world our sense of value welcome the world and worth And then in verses 10 through 14, what Jesus does is to drive this point right home. And we're kind of back where we began. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. I tell you in heaven, the angel always sees the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? Again, if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over 99 that never went astray. So it's not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now the parable bears striking resemblances with significant differences to Luke 15. I I don't think it's at all unreasonable that Jesus might have used parables and illustrations in different settings for different purposes. I mean, we all do that. In verse 10, the angel in heaven, I don't think, has anything to do with what is not a Christian notion that each of us has a guardian angel following us around. You, you know, Philip Pullman in the, the trilogy has, you know, what is it, a demon on the shoulder or whatever of, of, of Lara. But I, there's no, no indication of that anywhere in the, in the Bible. And anyway, if the, the angel is following us around on earth, how come it's seeing constantly the Father's face in heaven? Most likely, I think, is that it refers to the soul of every believer. And that fits with what we find in the rest of the New Testament, that we are seated with the Father in heaven. Because of Jesus' work on the cross, we've been raised up with him. We're secure in the heavenly places. Our, our life is hidden with God. Death and resurrection Jesus has secured for the believer heavenly treasure status. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we then will appear with him in glory. And so there is rejoicing in heaven every time one of these little ones is found and brought home. All of us will have stories of lost and found Remember Janet losing her engagement ring once? That was a huge 
we lost all the rings our children had made in DT down through the years. I mean, that was a major incident. Uh, when I was, I gather, Thierry's been telling tales out of class about uh, visits to Japan and um, bathing and this sort of thing. But visit, visiting uh, Thierry, uh, my wallet fell out of my pocket on the way to the airport. And, and you know, that was serious. Uh, thankfully, I had the passport, but um, it, it was picked up and returned within four days here in the office at St. Helens from Japan. That tells you something. There was much rejoicing, much rejoicing. But think of your most graphic lost found illustration. And you think the Lord, the Lord sent his son to die on a cross so that you and I could be found. Heavenly treasure, status. And so see that you do not despise one of these little ones. We must close. I have three brief observations. I'm no psychologist, but here are some thoughts. That the vertical impacts the internal. The value God puts on each disciple provides each disciple with profound assurance Each brick in the glorious eternal temple of God's church is priceless. And here's the paradox. The more I see myself as a spiritual loser, the the lower I find myself, well, God sees me as a heavenly treasure. And if you reverse it and take it another way, the more I see myself as I really am, something I really am, pretty, pretty important, the more insecure I will be. But as I come to God the Father, in the name of God the Son, nothing in my hand I bring. The vertical impacts the internal. But then the vertical and internal impacts the horizontal. It it gives the church a glorious acceptance of one another. The more I realize that I I am a spiritual loser the more, well, I'm not looking down on other people. I'm welcoming them. I'm, I'm rejoicing in being part of this wonderful family where we're all on a level. And so the vertical and internal impacts the horizontal. And what a wonderful family to be part of where we all recognize that in and of ourselves, we have nothing and bring nothing and owe everything. But then the vertical and horizontal impacts the internal because I'm part of this wonderful community where every single individual is oh so precious. What a wonderful thing it is to be part of the church. Praise God for his grace. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let's pray together. Unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter. Father, we pray that you would grant us a clearer and clearer view of ourselves, that we really do have nothing to bring for entry or greatness. We pray that we might be marked by uh, the humility of the Lord Jesus more and more. 
And we pray that you would help us to see the eternal value you put on each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.